0: Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh, joined in person this time by Frank Cagliano, who is back from his uh, global travels, or at least his American
1: travels. Welcome back, Frank. Thank you, David. It's great to see you. Yes. Hey, sorry, before we start, can I pay tribute to a listener? You, of course. in touch um, on social media, on Mastodon. I'd like to uh, thank Peter from Campus Lang for reaching out in response to our... Last episode on Jimmy Carter, and, and Peter pointed out, in response to your last drop, actually, oh. that um, he, he called my attention to an incident that happened recently, uh, which involved um, some German workers, I think, who were injured from mustard gas from a World War I uh, piece of ordinance. So in response to our discussion yes, we last yes, week yes. about... Whether they should have destroyed Georgia's, the civil war shells, so, so yes. People,
0: people look out for for artillery and various other kinds of destructive things from bygone days. Yeah, but
1: Peter, thanks for listening yes. and thanks for getting in touch.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you do hear you hear about this a lot in Europe. You know, of, of people finding uh, bombs from World War II or various other kinds of things and, yeah. and shutting down cities. as a This was
1: interesting because it was the First World War. Oh but, wow! Yeah. Okay, but, yeah,
0: great. Anyway, thank you, Peter. Right. So our topic uh, this week, we are now a month on from this uh, devastating uh, train derailment in East uh, Palestine, Ohio, um, which happened on February 3rd. This was an enormous freight train. uh, Based on the research, I think it's 1.67 miles long. It had 150 cars, 20 of which were carrying hazardous material. And as a consequence of the derailment, they had to evacuate a large section of this, this community. Uh, and there are all kinds of fears of um, toxic side effects for, for people and animals and land and trees and all the kinds of things. And, um, so we thought this would be an opportunity to talk about uh, industrial accidents and, and how Americans have responded to them uh, frank what's your initial response to the the events in east uh, palestine
1: well uh i mean we did an episode a few months ago didn't we on, on railroads mm. and the importance of of railroad f- uh freight traffic in the united states in particular uh and it's a huge part of the economy actually and yes. a really important part of the economy but one thing we've learned is it's not terribly well regulated <laughs> Uh, which has to be a concern, and you know, you noted the size of the train. Mm. I mean, it, it, when you see freight trains in the United States, they are incredibly long. Yeah. Um. And and so I, I guess we should be grateful that more accidents like this, or that accidents like this, don't happen more more frequently. Frankly, we don't know this how this is going to play out because mm. we don't know the long-term effects. One of the things we'll talk about today in, in discussing various industrial accidents is, um, particularly those involving chemicals and the byproducts of industry, the consequences are often... Uh, Don't play out or don't become apparent until many years afterwards. We've been subject to the kind of usual political posturing. The former Mm. president visited East Palestine to underscore the fact that the current president wasn't there because Joe Biden was in Kiev at the time. Um, Pete Buttigieg has been criticized for not going sooner. He's obviously the Secretary
0: of Transportation. It
1: did take him a while to get there. In truth, um, now I
0: mean, he said he didn't go earlier because he didn't want to interfere with the cleanup efforts, which is a you know you don't want to make a media show. And a,
1: yeah, know. he would say that though, right? I mean, I mean, David, I, I think uh, you can criticize Democrats, David. But
0: but but I mean, he could. I mean, there have been times when people have gone to disaster areas the day after the disaster and actually interfered with the you know disaster
1: response sure but i think the secretary of of transportation should probably turn up at an event because we've had jd vance the uh the the hillbilly elegy author Mm. now turned senator there we've had the governor of ohio Mm. Uh, there have been a number of politicians there and we've been treated to the unedifying spectacle of them drinking water to prove that it's okay Um, which is that kind of performative nonsense is just that nonsense but having said that i do think that uh secretary buddha judge who's Political in- instincts are pretty finely honed. Mm. I'm surprised he wasn't there sooner, because this is a guy with presidential ambitions. Or he certainly has had them in the past, and I doubt they've gone away. Uh, and this is... This was, in a
0: potentially I mean, swing state. Yeah. yeah a bad, pretty you know, bad
1: misstep, actually. But anyway, we don't know how it's going to play
0: out. Yeah. Well, one of the... I think, I think just to hide some of the things you mentioned, you know, there have been long, ongoing disputes about rail safety and about rail unions and about the conditions under which rail workers are, are working... One of the things that some of the rail workers have said is that their time that they have for inspecting these large freight trains ha- has declined pretty significantly over the past decade. They used to have, I think something like 90 seconds per car for inspecting them, and, and now they have less than a minute for each car, which, given what these these trains are carrying, that's pretty scary, um, you know, and that many uh, rail workers are working very long hours and, and um, all you know, that contributes to to and they're concerns.
1: reducing the crew numbers yeah, so yeah the ideal for for um some of the freight companies is to just have two I two think there were yeah there were on only three people on yeah. this
0: train right which is for a train that's almost two miles long that's that's
1: uh not, not very many
0: people not very <laughs> many people a, <laughs> you know and and I remember when I lived in North Dakota with you know these big trains would pass through and they would take you know if you're unfortunate to try to get somewhere it would take 20 minutes for these trains to yeah, sort of right. you know they're 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 enormous
1: and they often go through populated areas Aries, i right. mean i mean with all due respect to the people of east palestine we're actually relatively lucky that this accident didn't occur in a larger city mm. or a larger town um and, and and so uh i mean the consequences for the people of east palestine are, are could be quite profound mm. but fortunately it wasn't i don't know cleveland yes uh, to so, be sure. but uh, yeah
0: and the thing that I think is interesting about these industrial uh, accidents, so that's what we want to call them, disasters, um, you know, is thinking about who is responsible for them, right? And how does the question about responsibility play out afterwards? And we mentioned sort of the the political fallout of them. That you know, who is who is responsible politically for this? And there have been debates recently in, in in the aftermath. You know, how much of this is responsibility of the town? How much of this is the responsibility? the state of Ohio, it's nearby Pennsylvania and their effects there, how much does it affect them? How much is the federal government responsible? How much obviously is Norfolk Southern Railway responsible? And these kinds of debates uh, about, you know, responsibility for these accidents, I think is is one of the things that sort of distinguish, you know, or separate these kinds of, of events from, say, natural disasters, where there are sort of different kinds of calculus going on afterwards.
1: That's right. When it's an act of God, to use the phrase, mm-hmm. or a, a, you know, a hurricane or a forest fire, for example, there's a kind of recognition that the government. There might be a debate about whether it's the state or the federal government, mm-hmm. but the government should intervene and do something about this in the aftermath when it's a disaster mm. caused by the actions of a company or corporation, that sometimes changes the calculus uh, considerably.
0: Yeah. And there are actually a lot of these, right? If you look at the history of the number of industrial accidents in the United States, especially in the second half of the 19th and, and throughout the 20th century, there are just thousands of them and, and ones that have largely been forgotten. That's one thing that struck me in doing research for this episode was looking at these events, mine disasters and various other kinds of fires and, and and factory you know so that explode and all that kind of, there's just tons of them and and obviously I think that's a consequence of industrialization but it's uh you know striking how many of these I hadn't heard of before that in which you know dozens of people were killed
1: yeah I mean I was struck by one that I think you're going to mention later mm-hmm. that I had to confess I had never heard of mm-hmm. it happened in 1991 mm-hmm. yeah. so it was certainly within my uh frame of reference and and I just hadn't remembered it because as you say they happen with some frequency uh and, and so that that's important and and we might consider why some are remembered and others mm. are not i guess but um i think a key element here is in there are two factors that are really really important um industrialization and urbanization and i think when you combine both of those things mm. you get the kind of raw material for these kinds of um Accidents. That's why you don't have, there aren't major industrial accidents and deaths in work in the 18th century, for example. Well, lots of people um, would die working, but... People but, die working, but they don't die in large numbers, numbers in right, accidents because right. the scale just doesn't exist yet. The, the kind of uh, power isn't generated yes, to, to, to sure. do that. And, and so, so th- we see most of these in your sanctuary and in the 20th century. Mm. And what's, what's striking about the 19th century, and I'll turn mm-hmm. things over to you in a second, is, of course, because both industrialization and urbanization were taking off in a largely unregulated fashion. Um, The scale and scope of the accidents and death is pretty significant. I I told you about this before we we went on the air. I remember when I was in graduate school and I was reading about the late industrialization in the late 19th century, and I can't remember the figure or where I got it, so this is really a great historical mind at work. Um, But (laughs) there was a comment about the number of people who died coupling and uncoupling railroad cars in the 1890s sure. and this was in the back this was in with reference to the uh the great railroad strikes in the early 1890s and um i it was a shockingly high figure and and so so industrial work was and is quite dangerous but a pick particularly in that period the latter part of the 19th century uh, when when there weren't the kind of regulations in place that would uh, gradually emerge between the progressive era and down to the New Deal mm-hmm. in the middle of the 20th century. But as we'll see today, industrial accidents continue to this very day, you know, as we see with the, the, the example that we began with in East Palestine. But there have been a number of accidents that are quite significant. So this is a big, big kind of constant feature uh, of American and life in the industrialized world. What's interesting, though, I think, David, is the point you made how quickly they're often forgotten. So so the ones we're going to mention are ones that will probably be familiar to people because for whatever Mm. reason, they've stuck out in people's minds. But but, but the vast majority don't. I think that's right. So let's go back to the 19th century, David.
0: Yeah, and there's a bunch of places we could start. But the the one that, that sort of jumped out to me was the Great New York City Fire of 1845. There are a lot of fires in American cities in the 19th century. There are lots of... Indeed, there were lots of fires in New York City uh, in the 19th century. This is actually the third big fire they have. They had a big fire in in 18, or in 1776. There's a big fire in 1835. What made the one in 1845 jump out to me is it starts in a factory. And it starts, um, well, just for context, this is a moment in which the New York City is growing tremendously, right? That New York City was a, obviously a big city at, at, during the colonial period. It's a big city in the you know, first quarter of the 19th century, but this is a moment in which New York City is growing just, uh, geom- the population is growing geometrically, right? That the the construction of the Erie Canal, the rise of immigration from, from Ireland and, and Germany has led, this is really sort of a boom time for, for for New York City where the population is doubling every you know, 10 years or so. Uh, and it's a city that's increasingly becoming not just a port city, but a, a, an industrial city. So it's a, a fire that starts in a whale oil and candle factory. Whaling was a huge industry in the, in, in the 1840s. See, Moby Dick, if you uh, want more details. Uh, but Lots more details. details. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Thousands and done, with that, lots of it. But anyway, you know, whale oil was a, a very important industry. Uh, it, whale oil was used for lots of things, but... Um, in industrial capacities it's used for making uh, lamp oil and candles uh and but other kinds of, of, of lubricants
1: so it's flammable it is
0: extraordinarily <laughs> flammable um and so that it starts in this whale oil factory which as you would expect goes up in flames pretty quickly it then hits a uh, saltpeter warehouse which uh, saltpeters like the main ingredient or one of the main ingredients in gunpowder uh And, you know, when it hits, you know, the the whale oil burns pretty fast, but the saltpeter warehouse explodes. uh, And it destroys something on the order of 345 buildings. It kills 30 people. Um, But what's intriguing to me about the the fire uh, is a couple of things. One is that that, the New York City actually learned from some of its earlier fires, right? That that they had taken those industrial, the, the fires that had happened earlier especially the one in 1835, and had made some changes in, in how the city ran uh, in response to that. They had banned uh, wood-constructed buildings uh, and and said the buildings had to be, be constructed out of, of brick or stone, and that made a big difference. They had built a, an aqueduct uh, and a reservoir so that firefighters had enough water. They had started to professionalize the, the fire department. It doesn't really become professionalized really for another decade, but they had created a a more uh, robust fire response Um, and they tried in the aftermath of the fire to try to find people responsible for the fire Uh, and uh, you know they they didn't say look it's an accident that fires happen they said look there may be people who are culpable for these fires and these deaths and they arrest the guys who own the saltpeter warehouse because they thought well storing that much explosive material inside a major urban space that's that's uh, potentially uh, manslaughter or something. Um, the two guys who ran the warehouse were acquitted, but at least there's there's a sense there in which you know they were trying to find uh, individuals criminally uh, negligent. And I think one of the things that 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 sort of foreshadows is that in a lot of these cases there are efforts to try to sort of find and blame either individuals or corporations, but that oftentimes they're unable to actually bring those to those kinds of of prosecutions to fruition.
1: So, David, a couple things. Uh, One is, if you're interested in fires in New York... Yes. I thought you were going to mention that. Our former colleague, Ben Karp, who used to teach here at Edinburgh but is now at uh, City University of New York's Brooklyn College, uh, has just published a book on the Great New York Fire of 1776. And Ben... Breaks down whether the British did it or not, and and um,
0: I, I haven't read the book. And, and spoiler: Did the British do? Oh, okay, well, we'll find out. Okay, save save it, it, it for the readers. So, so, okay,
1: so. but but anyway, but Ben has um, has written a lot about the history of fire in New York. Mm. So if you're interested in this, uh, pursue that. With regard to the fire, the fire you're mentioning though is. Um, and of course, sorry to go back to the 1776 fire. Of course, New York burned in the aftermath yeah, the, of the British sure. invasion of New York. So, so uh, whether the British did it deliberately or not, they inadvertently caused it. Mm. Um, so I'll blame the British. Okay, <laughs> but but anyway, uh, with regard to the fire you're talking about. In the aftermath of it, did anybody say, Hey, maybe we shouldn't have a whale oil uh, factory next to a saltpeter factory?
0: <laughs> they, they actually they weren't I mean, they were a couple of blocks away from each other. Okay. So um, but uh, you know, I think there there were real discussions about sort of, you know, how do we build a, a city that is safer and right. you know, they're 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 still largely unregulated, right? I mean, I think they they're they're not get to the point and I think it's another century almost until you get to the point where there are efforts to, to regulate you know, working conditions and, and you know, uh, more so than, than they are you know, now.
1: So, David, when we think about 19th century fires, yes. you know, urban fires, the obvious one that comes of, to yes. mind is the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. Yes. Uh, does that count as an in, another industrial accident because of the And it, we have the same kind of, forgive the pun, combustible elements here in the sense <laughs> that you have urbanization, rapid urbanization, uh, in Chicago. Mm. Chicago's a re- very new city in yes. 1871. It's mainly made of wood as a consequence. Mm. Um, and, and they're tightly packed dwellings, especially around the stockyards. And a, as legend has it, Mrs. O'Leary's cow yes. knocked over a lamp and started this fire. Um, and about, I think it's 300 people are killed, killed in that yes. fire. The very same day in northern Wisconsin and in the upper peninsula of Michigan. Uh, a fire starts the Peshtigo Fire uh, of 1871. And this is industrial in the sense that it's ascribed by historians to the use of slash-and-burn agriculture up up in that region. Anyway, it's a forest fire, but actually far more people are killed. It's a bigger fire, yeah. and far more people are killed in the Peshtigo Fire, which is largely forgotten, hmm. than the Chicago Fire. The estimates range from about... Fifteen hundred to twenty four hundred. They're not quite sure how many people died, but it's it's certainly more than died in the Chicago fire. Hmm. And I don't know what to make of this. I don't, you know, it, does the Chicago fire, Chicago fire, is it better remembered because it's in Chicago? I, I think it's. I think that's the reason. Yes. <laughs> um, and there's a kind of folk tale about how it started, with yeah, this yeah, is O'Leary's just, cow and all well,
0: that. I, I, we used to drive through Chicago all the time. Um, driving, boom! I taught North Dakota. We used to have to drive through Chicago. And, of course, I would tell my children, who were much smaller, younger uh, than they are now, uh, about the fire and about its impact on the city oh. and great detail and telling about all the things. Car well, rides with David. <laughs> well, you know, it's a it's a long drive and you got to fill it with something. And,
1: and the thing they were interested
0: in was uh, about the cow and what the cow's name was. That's what my daughter, who was like seven at the time. She's like, well, yeah. and I obviously I don't we don't know what Mrs O'Leary's cow's name was, but I was feeling snarky because we'd been far too long. I think I said her name was Bessie, and then for the next five times we drove through Chicago, she wanted me to tell her about Bessie again, the the cow that kicked. For those of you who don't know, Mrs O'Leary had a, a barn and a cow, and the cow, at least according to one version of the story, kicked over a lamp, and the lamp started the fire that. That it's fire the city. There are other versions of the origin of the fire where some men were potentially gambling in the barn and they knocked over the lamp. Um, so I don't want to put aspersions on the cow if they are not deserved.
1: But um, the point being that kind of rapid urban growth, growth combined with, with the, the growth in terms of housing, yes. but also... Uh, population.
0: Well yeah, and well, one of the other things that contributes to both of those fires, that there was a drought in the Midwest in that summer, um, which led to, to well, obviously lots of, of, of fuel for the fire.
1: Now, there's a theory, and you're right, there was a drought, and that, that undoubtedly helps is a huge factor. Mm. Yet there is a theory that a comet caused both fires because they started on the same day. I think it's October 8, 1871. Right, yes. So it's, 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 it it's, is a strange coincidence that both fires start on the same day, not a million miles away. I mean, northern Wisconsin is pretty far from Chicago, but it's it's in the it's same, same general well, area. Well, if you're a comet, it's in the right. same <laughs> neck of the woods. Um,
0: That's right. The... Uh, I mean, I think it's interesting, to, you know, thinking about the, that fire and thinking about the, the one that happened in New York. And obviously there are lots of other fires that happen in the 19th century. This is a, a, an era where, where cities are growing tremendously and in which fire response is, 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 doesn't match that, that growth. You know, is the effort to try to sort of attribute, try to explain the causes of these fires and, and who who is there to blame and who can be held responsible and, you know, uh, in some ways blaming it on a comet or a cow is a way of saying actually this is an act of God, these things happen um,
1: As opposed to we've built our city in the wrong wrong
0: way. place yes or, or blaming an individual saying this
1: person started the fire. Um, Interestingly, the, I mean the great San Francisco earthquake of 1906, which kills more than I think it's 3400 yeah. people, is of course a natural disaster. But if memory serves, a lot of the people most killed people die in, the fire, in the fire. Right, yeah. in the fire that was caused. And again, it's the same kind of elements of of um, you know a crowded urban area. Yeah, yeah, and you know
0: there wasn't the sense in the 19th century, or in, or in the case of the earthquake in the early 20th century, uh, uh, that poor urban planning should be blamed for it. Um, you know, much in the, you know, thinking about what's been happening in the earthquake recently in, in Turkey, where there there have been political ramifications for for building codes and and other kinds of construction shortages that led to um, you know the huge death toll.
1: And one of the things that we that characterizes the progressive era, we often talk about mm. the progressive era. We touch on the progressive mm. era in this podcast, but. Uh, Urban planning is one of the one of the real improvements and one of the real really important developments that emerges from the Progressive mm. Era, in part in response to the the kinds of uh, disasters we're we're yeah. talking about. Oh, and
0: the, and there's a huge number. You know, thinking about the sort of lead up to the Progressive Era in the in the especially in the 1890s, there are a huge number of mining disasters and railroad disasters. And what's intriguing about those, um, and and you can pick your favorite one among them. Um, is largely that people sort of view those as a as an inevitable consequence of industrialization, right? That that when, as you point out, when all these railroad workers die, whether it's in sort of accidents that happen every day or when railroad workers die in, you know, large derailments or when they become injured, that is seen as a the cost of civilization or whatever, however they would have phrased it in, in the end of the 19th century. It's really during the progressive era that they start to sort of refigure you know, thinking about industrial accidents and, and, and are there ways in which they could be prevented? Um, and probably, I guess, the, the most famous example uh, that, that most listeners will probably have heard of is the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire from 1911, in which, uh, this is also, again, in New York City, 146 garment workers, uh, almost all of whom are immigrants and almost all of whom are, are women, uh, are killed in a, in a... Textile factory uh, in New York City, and uh, you know the, the fire starts. They think uh, when scraps of, of fabric uh, that are in this factory are, are catch fire, but what really makes it deadly is that the doors to the stairways and the exits were locked by the owners of the factory, um, and they did this for a few reasons. It seems to be that they didn't want the workers to take breaks. Um, by going and hanging out in the stairway, they claim they the want to prevent theft. They also seem to have wanted to keep unions out of their workplace and, and they feared that, that if, if the egress and, and, uh, to, uh, to the site would, would enable industrial urban uh, unionization. So they, uh, all those doorways are shut. The factory itself was on the eighth to 10th floor. Uh, most people who are working there are working under are pretty harsh conditions. They're working something like 52 hours a week for 7 to $12. Um, and I think if there's a turning point in terms of, of industrial accidents, I think this is probably it. In terms of thinking about um, trying to regulate factories, trying to make working conditions better, uh, and trying to hold people responsible. Um
1: that's more than sixty years after the Great New York Fire, fire. we began with, but in, to some extent, you've got a lot of the same elements at work, and so and the outrage and shock in the aftermath of yeah, the Triangle Shirtwaist fire. fire is quite profound. Yeah, the,
0: the the photos of it, if you've seen it, are, are pretty horrific. Many of the people who died in the fire, um, or actually they died in the the, not from the fire itself, but they jumped out of the windows and 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 obviously jumping out of an eight-story window onto concrete and, uh, you know people describe hearing the people fall and, and the sound they made when they landed, um, it's quite quite horrific. Um,
1: a few years before that, I mean, again, to just stress how dangerous this period was for workers, you get the Mononga fire, in, you know, the Mononga mine disaster hmm. in West Virginia in which more than 350 miners were killed, many of them children. So this also shocked the country. So it was a mine explosion. Mining of course was and remains an incredibly dangerous occupation and um, in and it's an incredibly important uh, industry in, in places like West Virginia and Kentucky and this mine explosion in, in West Virginia led to, oh, sorry, yeah, West Virginia mm. um, led to more than 350 deaths. But again, like the Triangle Shirtwaist mm. um, fire, the many of the victims, so, so the fact that many of the victims of the Triangle Shirtwaist fire were women kind of Plucked the conscience of the nation with the Monongah Mine disaster. Mm-hmm. A lot of them were children. They were child yeah. mine workers. And again, one of the reforms that comes out of the Progressive Era are, are rules against child labor, or at least try to, to try to put limits on child yeah.
0: labor. Yeah. So, so, thinking about the aftermath of the Triangle Waste Fire, there's a couple of important outcomes. Uh, you know, the state tries to really put in some real you know, regulations. There's a commission that was headed by by Robert Wagner, who was one of the main Progressive reformers. Not uh, the th- actor. Yes. Um, and co-chaired by, by Al Smith, who was later a candidate for president. Um, you know, and they did a series of investigations around the, the, the state. They had a, something like 3,000 pages of testimony and they passed a whole bunch of new labor laws in New York. Um, and so there was a real effort to try to sort of create a, a new framework for, for, for working people. Frances Perkins was actually an eyewitness to the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire, oh, really? uh, and who, for those of you, she goes on to become um, the first uh, Secretary of Labor uh, under FDR, and is very important in trying to try create uh, new conditions for workers. There is
1: she the first woman cabinet member. I
0: believe she is. Now, what happened to the other thing that's intriguing? Thinking about both, you know, response in terms of legislation, but also. What happens to the guys who ran the factory, who locked the doors, and, and were directly and indirectly responsible for the death of of, of all of these people? They were charged with manslaughter, and they got off. So they, you know, they, they the the jury found them not guilty of manslaughter. They were found guilty in a subsequent civil suit uh, for wrongful death, in which they were required to pay seventy five dollars per victim. To the families, they received, however, from their insurance company, two hundred dollars per victim, for the fire. Um, you know, and so in terms of you know, are the people who are responsible for these kinds of things being held liable? Um, in this case, clearly not the case. And I think in, if you look at sort of subsequent industrial disasters, you know, oftentimes our efforts to try to sort of pin the you know to to make the responsible parties you know pay for it in, in some kind of meaningful way, and, and oftentimes that doesn't
1: happen. So why were they acquitted? Was it because it was it was it considered an act of God? I
0: think I think it was that, you know, they, they couldn't prove that they had l- both that that they had locked that they themselves locked the doors and knew that the doors were locked. And, you know, they, they there was a fire escape and the fire escape buckled under the weight of the people. And so, the, you know, there were a variety of ways in which they you know, couldn't be criminally found uh, negligent, or at least uh, not not to the point of manslaughter. Um, you know the next really sort of in, in terms of thinking about these these events that get covered up or ones that get forgotten covered up is the wrong word forgotten one uh, industrial disaster that I found in doing research for this episode that I had never heard of before uh, but but I should have um, is the nineteen forty seven Texas
1: City disaster no 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 we got to go back Dick. oh you want to go back we have to go back.
0: Oh, because of one course. That
1: everybody's heard of well, not everybody, this is an exaggeration. It certainly was big where where I grew up was the great Boston molasses flood of nineteen nineteen.
0: To be sure. My apologies. How could one overlook the great molasses flood of nineteen nineteen?
1: Uh, it's just your typical New York attitude. You you know, it's it's fine. It's fine. I've learned to live with it. You are who you are. I understand. Um,
0: so, <laughs> Frank. so uh hey. <laughs> So, the, the, the mol- that sounds almost comical, but it's not, comical. it's not
1: actually. But it was, it was, um, so what happened was in, in 1919, January 15th, 1919, uh, a storage tank in the north end of Boston, uh, that was holding 2.3 million gallons of molasses. That's burst. a lot of molasses, it's a lot of molasses burst. And flooded the streets of the North End. And if you're familiar with the North End, I'm sure you've been to the North yes. End. Yes. It's very, very uh, kind of densely packed and the streets are very narrow. At that time, it was full of the tenement buildings um, that housed Italian immigrants, including some of my forebears. My grandfather lived. My grandfather remembers this as a boy. Okay. And I remember him telling me about it. Um, and so what happened was these 2.3 million gallons of molasses flooded the streets of the North End. Some claim the molasses moved because, well, you, know, you know, the expression is slow as is molasses. Yes, yes. So, that's so, the usual. Okay. <laughs> you know, we don't, one doesn't think of molasses as fast moving, um, especially in January in Boston. <laughs> Nonetheless, some estimates I have at the molasses moving at 35 miles per hour. So it was moving very, very rapidly, and 21 people were killed and 150 were injured in, in the Great Molasses Flood of 1919. Why were they storing molasses in the north end of Boston? Well, um, going back to the colonial period, mo- uh, distilling rum distilling was an important industry across southern New England. So what was happening was sugar from the West Indies was being processed and uh distilled into rum and molasses is a byproduct of that uh, process and so there was that industry continued throughout the 19th century and down to the early 20th century in fact my great-grandfather who was not the father of my grandfather who was a boy who remembered this he was the father-in-law of my grandfather so my Papa Joe who was my great-grandfather worked
0: okay genealogy
1: worked in a sugar refinery in Revere in Revere, Massachusetts. <laughs> Um, you know, my forebear um, worked in, 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 and so I have a family connection to this particular industry. Um, and and I, again, a lot of people would have a connection, mm-hmm. again, especially Italians. That was a heavily Italian neighborhood. It was full of immigrants, and most of those killed were Italian immigrants or, or their children, or their descendants, I should say, in, in, in the Great Molasses Flood of 1919. It is said it was claimed for generations afterwards that on hot summer days you could smell molasses in the North End. I never experienced that, but the, the, so it is claimed. So that is again, this is a, the the fact that there was a molasses tank in the North End is a byproduct of this this industrial legacy. The deaths are a result of the densely packed immigrant community. It, we're seeing a pattern here. Now it's I've, slightly unusual because it's molasses. Yeah. Now I've, I've got a series of questions. <laughs> Please. Well, I've pretty much exhausted my knowledge of this, but carry on. (laughs) How does one clean up that much
0: molasses? That seems like a a particular... Obviously, in some of these cases, cleanup is, is, is involving toxic elements, I imagine most of this just washes away in the rain, but
1: still, that's a lot of molasses. And it must have been incredibly sticky. Yes, I, I don't actually like being sticky. This is a personal confession, confession here. Okay. So it I think few a people really... do, Frank. So I don't no, think but, that's much no, no, of a confession. No, but, you know, but I really don't like being sticky. sticky. Okay. Uh, so 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 this would have been very day. unpleasant. Um, but I don't know how they cleaned it up. But that's an excellent question. Okay. So so and, and the do they have an explanation for why this?
0: Drum or 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 you know that burst. I think
1: they think it was just the pressure on the tank because um, there was so much molasses in it. And, and did the,
0: the the company did they did they were they held accountable for
1: the 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 I don't death instructions? Got, got okay. To confess, I yeah, don't okay. Know. Like, oh, so, all right. So as I said, I pretty much exhausted of my, my knowledge. knowledge. All
0: right. <laughs> well, we need to maybe have to do another episode. But anyway, let's go on to flight. Texas
1: in 1947. Yes. So but they... I did not want to. Oh no 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 town. no. To be sure.
0: <laughs> So this is. Um, had you heard, I hadn't heard of the Texas City disaster before I started doing research for this episode, but this is the largest industrial accident in American history, uh, and the fact that it is, and I hadn't heard of it, it, is both a demonstration of my ignorance on many topics, but I'm imagining lots of people haven't heard of it. We can't know everything, Dave. Well, that's to be sure to, that as we prove on uh, every we minute it, of this out it. exactly. Um, so this is the nineteen. 19- uh forty seven so it's immediately uh after the, the second world war. And it's in um Texas City is, is sort of near Galveston in Texas. It's a site of of a large number of, of, of shipping to most most of it going to Europe. A lot of it is going towards reconstructing Europe in the aftermath of the wars so lots of ships going to to, to France and wherever. And um, It's a fire that starts on board one of these ships that is stocked full of ammonium nitrate, which is pretty explosive. Uh, And then that fire spreads to other ships which are carrying other explosive elements and spreads to warehouses. They're carrying fertilizer and other kinds of of things. Um, It kills 581 people, so it's a huge death toll and more than 5,000 people were were injured. eyewitnesses to this this disaster describe it as, as being comparable to Nagasaki so obviously this is important right after the end of the war where the images of a, a city laid waste by, 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 by war are, are very present in people's minds and they said this looked like that um, the intriguing thing I found about this was in th- terms of trying to respond to it, there wasn't the kind of finger pointing that you find in some other natural disasters. There were, there wasn't an effort to sort of blame it on, um, you know, a particular company or a particular industry. Um, there was a, a lot of fundraising though that was done in the aftermath of this disaster to, to try to rebuild the city, uh, including fundraising that was being done by organized crime in Galveston, who wanted to rebuild the 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 shipping industry because because you know there's sometimes there's some correspondence there. Who do you think the the, the organized crime, uh, the brothers who ran uh, the, the crime syndicate in Galveston, and they're going to have a, an event for fundraising in 1947 to raise money, who do you think they're going to get to come and entertain the, the people of the greater Galveston area?
1: It's too early for Sinatra, is it?
0: No, it's Frank Sinatra. Is is it? It? It's All Frank right. Sinatra.
1: <laughs> That's exactly
0: who you think it is. Um, benefit Concerts and 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 Mob He Connect. was
1: very civic minded. He was
0: very that, that that's that's the way to, that's the way to think about it.
1: Um you know and, and
0: the fact that this sort of disaster which was just devastating to this community has largely been been neglected I think is is fascinating. I think that sort of speaks to you know some of these things everyone knows about, everyone knows about the molasses flood, everyone knows about the great Chicago fire, but the, there are dozens of others of, of really destructive Events that people which
1: which gets exactly. us to the why do things get remembered mm. or not because you think something of that scale and scope and Frank Sinatra was one of the biggest celebrities in the country yes, yes. So, so it's not like this wasn't mm-hmm. on people's minds Moment, right I've got a question about I've got a, I've got a supposition I suppose uh, and then I have a, I have a further comment one is of course 1947 it's in the wake of the war mm. and people may perhaps, so I put this out of my, my theory. Hmm. Perhaps people were just inured to mass death at that point, in the aftermath. I mean, not in the United States, it should be hmm. said, in the continental United States, but maybe it was, I mean, it's a big disaster, but, but people, you know, millions and millions had just died. Right, yeah, And so, and, so perhaps and that explains it?
0: I, I think that might be part of it. And I think the, the understanding of the explosive power of these kinds of things, that were that was...
1: Well, that gets to my second one, because one thing we haven't talked about. So we've talked about fires. We've mentioned mine disaster, mm. mentioned other industrial accidents. Uh, a huge number of these and um, uh, of accidents occur, unsurprisingly, in the production of munitions. Mm. And so during both World Wars and indeed afterwards, we, we see a lot of accidents. The most famous or infamous um, incident of this, uh, example of this, I suppose, is, yeah, happens not in the United States, but in Halifax, Nova Scotia hmm. in 1917, when there's a massive explosion in Halifax Harbor um, because a uh, munition ship blows up and it, it, it much of Halifax was destroyed. There is an American connection here because Boston was the probably the closest ma- major city there and Bostonians sent lots and lots of humanitarian aid, including the state of Massachusetts, the governor of Massachusetts and the mayor of Boston, organized relief and to this day, Nova Scotia supplies Boston with its annual Christmas tree, is, and thanks for that. Oh, that's fascinating. It is okay. fascinating, but but the but but we see accidents like that, and that if you see, it's worth looking at the kind of images. Uh, if you go online, at the the kind of destruction of Halifax mm. as a result of, the, of that that bombing, uh, that explosion, and and we see this periodically with. There's a kind of genre or category of mm. of, of industrial accidents around. Um, uh, war-making and munitions, uh, that, that's uh, pretty significant. And obviously that's a factor in, in, in tech, Texas City as yeah. well. Um, let's, let's, let's,
0: let's jump forward a bit to, to, to the 1970s, because I think um, there's some interesting events that happened in the 1970s that are also kind of turning points in how Americans respond to, to uh, industrial disasters. And I think this is actually sort of follows on well from our last episode on on President Carter. Because I think we have two events during the Carter administration, Three Mile Island uh, and Love Canal, that are interesting demonstrations of of how these things sort of play out. Uh, Which one would you like to tackle
1: first? Um, I guess chronologically, although Love Canal is longer, it's got a long chronology, but it's kind of most associated with 1978, whereas Three Mile Island is 1979. Mm -hmm. So So let's start with Love Canal. Okay. Do you, want, do you want to tell the Love Canal story? Uh, well, to the extent I, I know much about it. So Love Canal is is a kind of suburb of Buffalo. Um, and it was... Uh, it thrived immediately after the Second World War, but there was um, a local chemical f- plant. I think it's Hooker Chemical. Yeah, Hooker that, Chemical, yeah, uh, yeah, in the uh, 1940s. There. Yeah, that it, where many of the people who lived in Love Canal worked, but also... There was a long-standing buildup of toxic chemicals in the ground and water Mm. in Love Canal. And um, during the 1970s, after a series of... uh, it was heavy snowfall, and there's often heavy snowfall in the Buffalo area, of course. I've heard tell. Yes, <laughs> the Buffalo is known for that. Yeah. Um, and when the snow melted, the water table flooded, or uh, was, was saturated, mm. and, and chemicals came to the fore. Anyway, high incidences of leukemia and other cancers in Love Canal, uh, or at Love Canal. And as a result of that, um, what we see, and we talked about the creation of the EPA, mm. the Environmental Protection Agency, the federal government intervenes in Love Canal uh, in 1978, and and it's, I think, the first time they created a, a super fund for yeah, disasters. The, the,
0: the super fund was designed in response to this.
1: Right, because yeah. they had to move the community. They had to yeah. move everybody out of there and basically destroy it. Yeah. You know, or, and they had to use super fund funding to clean it up. So it's a turning point in the history of government intervention and the development of the of the EPA. Yeah. So, add, uh, well, the,
0: the, this is actually the first time there was a emergency funds from the federal government given uh, to a situation other than a natural disaster. So you know there have been previous occasions where federal government stepped in after a hurricane or an earthquake or what have you, but this is actually the first industrial accident. Uh, in, if it's an accident, that's from, you know maybe not be the right word. First. Uh, disaster, uh, an industrial disaster in which the federal government is stepping in to intervene. Um, And they do create the Superfund program in the aftermath of Love Canal. Uh, There are now more than 40,000 federal Superfund sites across the country. So, I mean, Love Canal, I think, is is a, a demonstration of how industrialization that had taken place in the 40s you know really comes to the fore decades later you know they had built much of this community on top of this toxic waste dump canal you know in which they had they had dumped barrels and tons and tons of chemicals that i can't pronounce um and i'm not going to try to but you know it, it caused all kinds of, of health problems for the community there and they, they really just had to sort of bulldoze the and relocate the entire community as a consequence
1: at great expense and and i think i think there is a distinction to be drawn between what we see around love canal and say the boston molasses Mm. flood or other so what you struggled about using the word disaster because it's not a single event what we see at love canal and we see it in other places the Flint water crisis, yes. of more recent vintage, the current Mississippi water crisis in Jackson, are the long-term consequences of mm. industrialization, often decades in mm. the making. Um, and it's slightly different than a kind of uh, incident like a fire mm. or a flood, or you know, uh, the Triangle shortwave fire happened on a particular day, area. and X number of people were killed. This is the the result, the long-term consequences of industrialization. And and we're reckoning with those and yeah. continue to reckon with like those. The
0: other sort of site that seems very similar to me uh, is an area in Louisiana called Cancer Alley. You know, in which there are lots of petrochemical plants and chemical other kinds of chemical plants that uh, have led to tremendous health consequences for the people who live in that area. Many of whom are are, are black and many of whom are quite poor. Um, you know, and the and the question I think becomes, you know, you know how who do you hold responsible for these Consequences where where the people who were put those barrels in Love Canal or the people who built the the chemical factories in Louisiana, you know, have been dead for decades. Right, and how how do you create sort of responsibility uh, for that? And what role does the federal government have? What role do state governments have? What role do corporate entities, which you know may have absorbed poker chemical, you know, in the decades since? What responsibilities do they have for these? Uh, you know the human lives that were ruined,
1: and it's those kinds of long-term consequences that the people in East Palestine yeah. are worried about. In terms of the, the the incident, we began began this episode with, uh, you know, there the, the, the weren't that many people injured in the actual derailment, yeah, right. and 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 exp- although there was a. Huge explosion, right, controlled, expl- controlled explosion. Uh, I'm using controlled advisedly, um, but it's it's a worry about the long term consequences mm. um, uh, for the people there are, uh, that is most pressing for the people there, and I think that's interesting. So that may well fit into the category of, of um, Love Canal and, and other and Cancer Alley. Yeah, yeah,
0: I think and I think one of the things that Love Canal really made people aware of. You know, is that these events do have these consequences? I think people who are you know in East Palestine, you know, they are consciously thinking about you know, is our community going to be like Love Canal, or are we going to have to bulldoze our entire community because we found out that chemicals have leached into the water or the soil or, or something else?
1: And that's why the politicians are drinking water, water to right. prove that it's okay. Now it may well be that we you know those those images of politicians drinking the water in East Palestine become kind of. Um, uh, uh, almost shocking memes. True, <laughs> so sure, it were But, you know, we have to wait and see how this plays out. So what about Three Mile Island? Three Mile, Islands, itself, right. So Three Mile Island, right. So this
0: is a, a, a nuclear power plant in uh, Pennsylvania, near near Harrisburg, uh, that had a, a... It didn't have a full meltdown, so it wasn't like Chernobyl, but they had a partial meltdown that required... Uh, the evacuation of a large area around uh, the, this facility. And I think in terms of the, the consequences locally, they, they shut down that particular um, reactor, uh, but really I think did lead to a, a fundamental change in, in terms of Americans' understanding of and thoughts about certain kinds of power production. Right, I think There was, had been a move towards Nuclear power is being one of the, the main sources of energy in the United States and, and Three Mile Island, I think, is really the turning point, in which that didn't happen or it slowed that down tremendously. There was a huge public response. People worried about what would happen if the power plant near them were to, to have some kind of uh, meltdown.
1: That's right. I mean, we had the film China Syndrome right mm, after that, yeah. memory serves. And there was a great, you know, the No Nukes, Nukes movement, movement started. Yeah. The No Nukes concert was in 1979. Um, listeners you should go listen to the
0: concerts clearly yeah uh, uh,
1: but but you know, apart from those cultural resonances uh, those people really began began to question um, nuclear power after that in the United States um, and, and have continued to do so of course there's a kind of pro-nuclear movement of, of as well uh, which has recently tried to make an environmental case in mm. favor of, of increased nuclear power as as as, a, as the Better as the alternative to um, burning fossil fuels. But uh, but Three Mile Island was definitely, I mean, I do remember, you won't mm. remember Three Mile Island, no. you were one uh, or two. But I, I, I remember Three Mile Island. It was a big deal at the time. In fact, my wife and I last week when we were returning, uh, we were driving up from Virginia up to New England before we came back uh, the other day. And we stayed in Harrisburg. Mm. or we stayed in, We actually stayed in Mechanicsburg. Um, but my wife, who did not grow up in the United States, but is is Swedish, uh, when I said, "Oh yeah, we're we're near Harrisburg," and she said, oh, Three Mile Island." Oh, wow! So, so she, you know, they, clearly this kind of resonated um, even in Europe at the time, and unsurprisingly, uh, where where the nuclear anti nuclear movement was probably even stronger then than it mm-hmm. was in the United States. But yeah, so
0: those two events, you know, happening within a year of each other, I think, really did change the public consciousness towards you know the the, both the short-term and long-term consequences of of a certain kind of industrialization what it could mean for them even if they weren't working in a factory necessarily well that's
1: it i think you know they're scarier because they're insidious and you don't see it necessarily Mm. and 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 people are getting sick and you know a mine disaster is terrible a factory fire is terrible but they're understandable yeah. and comprehensible as opposed to... And if you're not like, a
0: mine worker or a factory worker, you say, well, it's not my, it's tragic but not my concern.
1: Right. As opposed to thinking I happen to live in this town and the leukemia rate is much higher because of, of mm. um, what happened decades before. That was really... I think that's one reason why these things really resonate and are quite scary to people. Yeah, frankly. I think that's right. And, and frankly, they should rightly be. so. <laughs> yes, yes. You
0: know, there's reasons why Yeah, people people's consciousness. Uh, can I
1: mention one other famous one from the 1970s that yes. we remember, largely owing to pop culture, which is the um, November 10th, 1975, sinking of the um, freighter Edmund Fitzgerald on yes. Lake Superior, which of course was immortalized in the song by Gordon Lightfoot. Uh, 29 crew members died, so it's a not insignificant event, and we haven't really talked about shipwrecks. Um, shipping and freight freight shipping is even more important globally than rail uh, rail freight, and and um, there are a considerable. It's a quite a dangerous business as sure. well. It's rare for ships entire ships to be lost but mm. sailors are killed all the time okay. or uh, merchant seamen are killed but uh, yeah so the, the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald of course made famous by the song of the same name occurred in 1975 so you have all these
0: things 1970s was well and obviously this is the the you know real growth in the environmental movement and, and the growth of the you know the EPA at the beginning of the 1970s and what have you so I think there's a both consciousness of all these kinds of things. Speaking of ships, uh, the, the, the event and in, in, you know, things that I remember from my childhood that, that, that really were struck in terms of an environmental uh, disaster and an industrial disaster was the Exxon Valdez in, in 1989, which uh, was a Exxon oil tanker uh, that ran on a ground on a reef in um, Alaska, in a very remote part of Alaska, and, and spilled basically a full cargo ship's worth of of, of, of of petroleum into the sea
1: yeah 10 million gallons and you know the,
0: the images from that are, are pretty burned in my brain of, of you know birds and uh, covered in, in, in oil and just, just this landscape that that had been been amazingly beautiful being transformed into this you know, toxic sludge because of of this this uh, oil spill. Uh, it's the second biggest oil spill in American history. The Deepwater Horizon from twenty ten uh, is is larger in terms of the number of gallons, uh, but the images I think from the Valdez are particularly striking.
1: Yeah, I mean that was a really. I mean the those two. And it's interesting because there are a lot of oil spills. Oil spills mm. are something that happen quite frequently, but those two in particular seem to have really resonated. And I think the Exxon Valdez was so powerful because the area was so remote. It was apparently, you know, it was pristine. Yes. And, and, and and the oil spill just, as you say, transformed wildlife and, and the, the sheer kind of scale and uh, the juxtaposition of the place and the the pollution was was pretty striking. Whereas the Deepwater Horizon in two thousand and ten, hmm. I read about it a little, a little to remind me, m- remind myself about it uh, in preparation for this, went on for eighty seven days. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's three months, and and you know three million barrels of oil were basically just pumped. Um, into the Gulf of Mexico. It's it's, it's a, I mean scale and scope is much bigger than the Exxon Valdez actually. And we remember it in part because it went on for so long, and and it became a partisan issue as these things sometimes do. Uh, you know, uh, Republicans claim that you know President Obama was incompetent, and therefore it went on for mm. so long, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. Um, They wanted to go underwater and plug the hole. Yeah, yes, yes, uh, but but. Uh, it, but what's amazing about that one is just the scale and scope of it. But I think because it was the Gulf of Mexico and because that area, basically the oil business is so important in hmm. coastal Louisiana ah. and Texas, that it, although it did impact and there are films about it and everything else, um, it, it didn't quite... I don't think it's persisted as much as the Exxon Valdez. Maybe yeah. I'm wrong about that. No, I, I, th- I, th-
0: I think in terms of the cultural memory, Valdez is... is, is... More important has a a longer impact. One thing that strikes me about the Valdez is about the, you know, thinking about who was to blame and who ended up paying a cost for it. The Exxon company uh, uh, blamed the captain of the ship for the man by the name of Joe Hazelwood. They said he was drinking and they said, look, the responsibility for this incident doesn't rest with us, it rests with him. He was drunk blame him, and um, the investigations that were done afterwards revealed a few things. Uh, one is that the crew was vastly overworked. They were working much longer hours with much fewer staff than they should have had. The ra- Sounds like the train in East Palestine. Palestine. The the radar in the ship was broken. The one that was supposed to detect the reef that they hit, that was broken, but that Exxon had determined it was too expensive to fix it, so it, they were dealing without you know, adequate information. Uh, Exxon also blamed uh, the state of Alaska, saying, and they actually sued Alaska, saying that Alaska had impeded their cleanup efforts.
1: Well, in fairness, David, Alaska was in the way of the ship. Ship, exactly.
0: (laughs) Um, They also, so they they sued the state of Alaska. They also sued the Coast Guard because they said the Coast Guard was wholly or partially responsible for the spill because they didn't warn the ship about the, the, the reef that was there. Um, and that they had licensed, given licenses to everyone on the crew. They, you know, they had a Coast Guard license to sail ship, and they said, well, clearly, this is all your fault. Um, so the Exxon sort of uh, tries to absolve itself of all responsibility by saying, look, it's a drunk sh- uh, captain, and and it's the state of Alaska, and the Coast Guard's problem. Exxon gets sued for the, the damages. Uh, an Alaska jury uh, grants... $5 billion in punitive damages. However, series of, they, as you would imagine, they appeal this, they end up only paying about 10% of that. Which, you know, $500 million is, is still a lot of money for you and me, but for Exxon, um, and this includes us, the Supreme Court decision, which is largely considered one of the worst decisions the court has ever made. They said, actually, you know, let's make it, much, much smaller. Uh, so so there's a, you know, in terms of, of a way of holding the corporation accountable and really trying to sort of say, look, you need to make sure your ships are safer, make sure your crews are better trained and have more rest and have um, you know the resources they need, uh, you know, in some ways it was sort of rung up as a, a cost of doing business. And I think one of the, the things about these, these industrial disasters, especially when you're thinking about these large, multinational corporations that are phenomenally wealthy, they sort of factor in a certain kind of, of uh, you know, rate of these things happening as part of their sort of normal operating costs. You know, when the, the Deepwater Horizon uh, spill happened, the insurance payment that the company got for the, the rig that was destroyed was was worth, you know, more than what they were fined for the for the destruction. Right, and so they actually made a profit off of it.
1: And that was BP, not Exxon.
0: Yeah, so sorry, yeah, that's, I mean, uh, with with Deep Deepwater Horizon, but for, you know, Exxon with the Valdez, you know, they, they, they were originally going to be punished quite severely, um, but, but really got a comparative slap on the wrist, which I think says something about, you know, how many of these, these disasters are, are considered sort of acceptable, you know, and thinking about what happened uh, a month ago you know will there be a response to actually make sure that these things don't happen as often or are we capable or you know are we comfortable with accepting a certain level of of of, of destruction that goes along with with a particular kind
1: of industrial lifestyle well that industrial production yeah <laughs> our way of life depends on yeah, it to and, be sure and people who are comfortable with that way we, we all want Gas for our cars, right? Uh, to, yeah. Uh, or petrol, even.
0: <laughs> if you have a car. Right. Um, you know, the, the, the event, one event that really struck me in, in, in doing research for this episode um, was the, the Hamlet Chicken Fire of, of 1991. Yeah,
1: let's wrap up with that one because this is the
0: one I hadn't heard of. So this this is a, a chicken processing plant uh, in, in Hamlet, North Carolina, hence the uh, Hamlet Chicken Fire. Um they were basically making chicken nuggets, right? So they're, they're taking uh, chicken parts and, and processing them into other things. It uh, There was a fire inside the factory that killed 25 people and injured 54. And what's striking about this particular fire is that this is a site that had a really bad safety record. Right. In the eleven previous years of uh, of operation, they had had three fires inside the plant, but it had never received a safety inspection. Right, so like the state regulators hadn't gone in, the federal regulators hadn't gone in. They didn't have a fire alarm. They didn't have a operational sprinkler system. And the fight that happens in the aftermath of the Hamlet Chicken fire, the the political fight, is between state and and national officials over regulating factories like that because what the state said is look we don't want the feds to come in we want to do this locally on the other hand they said we don't want to invest in a huge number of new inspectors because business that would be bad for business all right and and part of it was we don't want to make it we want to have all of these factories and we want to have all of these chickens being processed and workers working in them when we don't want to have the, the economic health of the state being interfered with by excessive regulation. And there's this fight that happens as a consequence. And I think that sort of speaks to these broader issues about, you know, what's going to happen in the aftermath of this this train derailment. You know, there's not a huge national appetite for a lot more regulation of, of railroads. There's not a huge, I think, appetite for for greater safety or better working conditions for railroad workers. And, um, you know, I think we're going to see more of these episodes. There's going to be people who go for the photo shoots, because the photo shoots are, you know, that's politics. Um,
1: I I want to challenge that a little bit, David. Um, I I think accidents will continue to happen, because hmm. we live in a highly industrialized economy, and people want chicken nuggets, and Hmm. they want petrol, and they want, you know, so so, uh, (laughs) there will continue to be accidents. They... I hesitate to make a prediction because I'll undoubtedly be wrong. And if this episode has showed us one thing, this list of things, the vast majority of these things are forgotten. Hmm. The East Palestine accident does seem to have stayed in the news for a long time. It's been, you know, it's all—it's—it's it's in the New York Times this morning. That's a uh, month uh, later. Yeah. You know, it's a month later. So, so maybe sometimes things break through and there are reforms. You know, I think there's been an emphasis on on just how dangerous the railways are as a result of this, mm. and there's been there have been hints of doing some government intervention to do something about this. Um, so, again, as I say, I hesitate to make a prediction, but maybe this time, it, you know, there will be a change. I I, you know, I think we don't know. The fact that this has been front and center for a month. Mm. Despite some other big stories like the war in Ukraine <laughs> yes, yes. and 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 so on going on, um, gives me some cause for hope. I think your first statement that there will be further accidents is undoubtedly mm. true, because of, of the uh, of the world we live in, which remains to be remains uh, for many workers uh, a very dangerous place. Uh, but but maybe maybe the railroads will be a little safer as a result of this. All
0: right.
1: Well, so, we will yeah.
0: see. But uh, but but uh, I hope all the people. Uh, East Palestine State, you know, I hope that 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 the water is safe and that that the conditions are um, not as bad as at least they initially looked because yeah. there, there there are some pretty scary sounding chemicals there and the uh, the images were, were uh, especially those smoke clouds were, were pretty scary to look at. Yeah, that's right.
1: Right time time for the last drop. So David, me? I've got two. I've no, got go one that is a reference to is kind of building on our theme today, and then the. Um, if you like the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, you'll like this. So, on a couple of days ago, in the New York Times on March first, um, the Times reported it with a story with the headline "Sunken Ship Discovered in Lake Huron," and um, divers uh, discovered the remains. It's actually pretty much the whole ship of a, a ship called the Iron 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 Ir, Ironton excuse me, Ironton, which sank in 1894. It was a freighter that sank. It collided with another ship in 1894 and sank in Lake Huron. And what's interesting about this story, I, th- I think, and and forgive me for not having the details it had, um, six or seven sailors were killed. It didn't have a huge crew. Um, but what's particularly tragic or sad about this is they... Made it to the lifeboat. They were in the lifeboat, but the lifeboat was still tied to the ship that was going down, and they got dragged down with them. Jeez. And what's interesting about this, and and the story in the time in the New York Times has has a great video attached to it, so you can see the ship itself, and it's largely intact. Is that the? You can still see the lifeboat, which is attached to the ship. Oh, gee, wow. So anyway, I, I commend that story to you, and it's in in keeping with the theme of the episode. So so if you, if you how did know,
0: they find the ship that's in the- Bottom of a very large lake.
1: Well, the divers were looking for it. They had an approximate oh, okay. notion of where it was. Okay. Um, so it wasn't just like an accident. That no, no, it. no. And one thing that was interesting uh, about it is that the Ironton is pretty well preserved because Lake Huron is so cold. Okay, and so the the ship itself is is, is you know we we get to have very, um, very kind of complete remains of this ship from the late nineteenth century uh, on the floor of Lake uh, of Lake Huron. Uh, my other um, uh, last drop, which if that's not a contradiction, yes, yes. <laughs> is I want to remind people about the upcoming Fennell Lecture, and the Fennell Lecture is an annual event um, that we have in the School of History, Classics, and Archaeology here in Edinburgh. And this year's Fennell Lecture will be delivered by historian uh, Julia Late of uh, Birkbeck College, University of London, and and um, uh, Professor Late will be speaking about, her title is Like the Ruins of a World, Britain's Oldest Colony in the Making and Remaking of Place. And uh, Professor Late, who is a native of Newfoundland, uh, um, will be talking about early uh, the early history of Newfoundland and the early settlement of Newfoundland. Um, and it promises to be a very, very interesting lecture. And it is March 30th, Thursday, March 30th at 5:30 p.m. And uh, you can get tickets. I've already got mine. Right. Yes.
0: Good for you. And they're free. You know. Good. They for you. are free. And they the Fennel are. lectures are always great. So they are so.
1: indeed. So it's 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 really one of the signature events of the year. So please come in here, Professor Lake.
0: What about you, David? Uh, I also have have more than one last drop, but because because I do. Um, first, I want to uh, point out that that. Uh, if you're listening to this, the day it drops, uh, SASA is is basically now, uh, so we're recording this on Friday. On tomorrow is, is, is SASA, the annual uh, conference. This is a Scottish Association for the Study of America, and I'm very much looking forward to it because after eight years of being um, on the committee, I'm not in the committee anymore, so I can go and just enjoy the conference uh, for the conference without having any responsibilities or burdens for organizing it. Uh, but it's a great conference for those of you who are... Uh, interest in presenting an American history or American studies kind of paper in Scotland in the future, we think about SAS as an option. My um, second, uh, I was very excited last night to go to an online event uh, to commemorate the republication of a book uh, by Alan Chalice called White Terror, which is a book from the 1970s, uh, which is about the, the clan violence during, during Reconstruction that's been out of print for many, many years, but uh, due to the work of uh, Karen Cox, uh, the historian uh, at uh, UNC Charlotte, uh, and good folks at LSU Press. They have issued a, a new edition uh, with a, with an introduction by Professor Cox, uh, which I've not gotten a copy of it yet because it's now released in the U.S., but not yet in Scotland. So as soon as it's a uh, British publication date, I'm going to get a hold of that. But uh, they had a very good online event. And the third uh, last drop, if Again, that doesn't make any sense, but so we have five last drops stops. between exactly. us. <laughs> well, we're, we're thirsty people. Is um, uh, an article in the uh, New Yorker by uh, uh, Nathan Heller uh, called "The End of the English Major," and despite the title, it's it's actually about the end of all of the humanities majors. I think half of the examples are about about history departments and, and history courses, and about the ways in which the humanities have been under assault as especially in the United States in the, since, really, 2008, uh, and the number of people uh, majoring in humanities has, has dropped profoundly and, and funding for humanities has dropped profoundly and tries to explain, if not solve, that, that particular uh, precipitous decline. Um, and it's really quite alarming.
1: It's a essay. long essay, but it's worth your time.
0: Yeah, it is definitely worth uh, it time.
1: I hesitate to ask this, David, because we've gone on for a long time, and you're the pessimist in this duo. Do you think the humanities can be saved at the university level in the and I would say in the United States, but actually the trends that the essay emphasizes are actually at work more broadly. that's yeah. not confined to the United States. It's probably a topic for another episode. episode yes, but, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm short answer. I,
0: I am long term. I'm hopeful for the humanities. I think short term things don't look pretty bleak. Um, you know, I think that the the, the, the issues that, that the article raises about why the humanities have declined. I think there there's those are very powerful forces. And uh, but I, I'm I'm hopeful long term. I, I guess I have to be. All
1: right. All right. Let's yes. leave it yeah, exactly. We should we should do an episode. episode on this, right. All right. All right. Cheers, cheers, David.
0: The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is Professor of American History and Dean International for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at WhiskeyRebelPod, and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.